question was uh, to go over the phrase, the traditional phrase for the equanimity practice. You are the heirs of your own karma. Your happiness and unhappiness depends on your actions, not on my wishes. The point being that we could wish for a thousand years that somebody be happy and our wish could be genuine come from a place of real metta but unless the person actually performs the actions which are the cause of happiness then happiness doesn't come was whether we can get a sense of the impermanence of awareness. There are stages in practice where that uh, insight becomes clear. I think Steve is going to be giving a talk on the different experiences in the uh, progress of insight, at least according to one one map of it. And that's uh, that's one of the pieces, that's one of the stages. Um, it usually it usually happens when we're seeing the dissolution of things so quickly that we also begin to see the dissolution of the consciousness which is knowing them. comes up not only from you every year, but <laughs> from, from others as well. I mean, so it may be good to talk a little more about it. There are two aspects which may help to at least um, open up possibilities of a connection of understanding. Would you repeat the question? Yeah. The question was 
about the difficulty of understanding this phrase of equanimity that your happiness depends on your actions. When we see people in a lot of suffering who don't seem to have really done anything to warrant that suffering. You know, so that's, I think it's a really legitimate question. Okay, just two aspects to consider. One is that it is really impossible to understand it uh, in terms of a single lifetime. So, if that's the framework with which we're viewing things, there's just going to be so much that doesn't fit into that framework. We're not going to be able to encompass the, the fullness of the possibility of what that statement means. So for most of us growing up in the West, that's a bit of a dilemma since we don't particularly have the belief in other lifetimes or past lifetimes. You know, for many of us in practice, that understanding grows. When I began, when I first began my practice, I had no either understanding or belief or conviction, even in the possibility of last li- past lives and future lives. And so I know, I'm familiar with the conditioning that we come from. Over the years of practice, through a variety of experiences, I began to open more to the possibility you know, that that might actually be true. So then the equanimity phrases began to at least have a container that made sense, you know, it was big enough. And when you read the suttas, you know, and even uh, some of the Jataka tales you know, that Stephen has been uh, speaking about, the Buddha often will trace back a person's present experience to some action from some past life, which normally we can't see and we can't know. So that's one angle. Just to see that in order to understand it, we really at least need to consider the possibility of a much bigger perspective. From the other side, I think a confusion that upsets us when we do the equanimity or repeat the phrases is that somehow we misassociate equanimity with lack of compassion. All beings are the heirs of their own karma. Well, tough luck. (laughs) You you deserve it. Something like that. That's not at all the spirit, you know, the equanimity phrases and the understanding of the law of karma is not about blame. It's not about blaming the victim. It's not about, it's not a vehicle for revenge, you know, in our minds. It's all about understanding a lawful process and letting that actually be the cause of compassion in us to grow for the ignorance which repeatedly 
conditions the actions which cause suffering. So then the understanding, the wisdom of equanimity actually leads us to compassion for the suffering that's there, not a withdrawal or an indifference. So seeing that link is critical so that we don't use the equanimity and fall into what its near enemy is, which is indifference. In Japan, you know, you're born in Shinto, you marry in Shinto, but you go to Buddhist Buddhism to die. <laughs> so, I have two questions. Who died? And if there is no self, <laughs> why is there all this teaching of the whole preparation for dying? Your question was about both understanding impermanence increasingly during these three months, seeing the, the momentariness of birth and death you know, in a deeper way, reflecting on death, which then raised the question, well, in the light of anato, selflessness, who is it that dies? And then wondering how to hold that question in the light of all the Buddhist practices of preparation for death. If one really uh, had fully realized selflessness, the preparatory practices for death would be unnecessary. The fact is that we may have glimpses of varying depths you know, into the selfless nature, into the fact that there's no one there. And yet our understanding may very well not be complete. And so the supportive practices in many respects, you know, the, 
the Brahma Viharas, the reflections on death, all those practices which support skillful, non-grasping states of mind are a great strength, are a great support, given the fact that we're not yet completely liberated. But you have two more weeks, so... I mean, this is, I think this is one of the great uh, beauties of Buddha Dharma, is that it encompasses the realization of perfect enlightenment and gives us practices for exactly where we are. You know, and it's really the union of those two, which, you know, in many ways we've talked about over these weeks, that union of relative and absolute. And that's really what kind of grounds our practice very pragmatically in exactly where we are in the moment, and yet it's in the context of the deepest wisdom. Now, as you practice in these last couple of weeks, I think it's helpful if you connect with or reconnect with just the vastness of what this is all about. And the Buddha talked in the most profound way of suffering and freedom. You know, and to really see moment to moment, not theoretically, not abstractly, in every moment, to see, to notice, to observe, to investigate how the mind gets caught, and how it can let go. This is not a trivial undertaking. And to the extent that you see it here with greater and greater clarity, of course, it enables us to live our lives in a freer and freer way. Part of what makes uh, careful attention possible or a support for it is something we've mentioned throughout the retreat, and that is uh, slowing down a bit. You know, because when we're going at our normal speed, our mind is often doing its normal thing. Just by slowing down, in some way, the very unnaturalness of it actually can wake us up. It it helps us to pay more attention. It shouldn't be done in a tight way. It's not holding ourselves back. It's really just slowing down out of an interest and a care in each moment. Taking care in a movement and standing up and putting shoes on and opening a door, whatever it is. So in these last few weeks, see if you can 
uh, work with this as a support for a gentle and relaxed and caring awareness. Likewise, for those of you who perhaps are not as slowed down as others, be a little patient if you're behind somebody who's really creeping along, you know, and you're waiting to get to lunch or whatever, you don't have to... <laughs> Come on, hurry up, let's get going. Be patient. Let let that be a reminder to, shh, okay, I can just stay here. I can be with my breath. I can, I can wait with a, with a clear awareness. It might be particularly helpful at times in the dining room when there can be a clash of speeds. Uh, Have fun. (laughs) Any questions about your practice? question was about going to this technique of uh, Vipassana, which is sweeping the attention through the body. It's a good way of practice. You know, it's... When we first studied with Manindraji in India, he said that in Burma alone, to his knowledge, there were over 50 different techniques of Vipassana. So we don't want to get into the notion that there is one way to do it. The thing that all of them have in common is the development of the four foundations of mindfulness in one way or another. It's about developing undistracted awareness. So whether we use the primary object of the breath or sounds and then note everything else that happens, or we use the technique of these body sweeps or body scan, it's all, it's all for the purpose of developing strong awareness. So there are a lot of approaches, you know, and at least some of you in interviews must have noticed that at different times, different suggestions will be made, you know, in terms of a method or technique, you know, to help balance the practice in a particular way. Choiceless awareness. Um, why is 
why is that? Is it just because they're so connected but so different and focused that that has not been given much attention in this retreat? The question was about in the Vasudhimaga, the path of purification, there's a lot of teachings on making the three characteristics the focus of attention and apparently the sense that in the way things have been described here, there's not quite that same focus. They're they're actually not different at all. The great danger in too much study before practice is that we create uh, a lot of ideas you know, about how the practice should be or how it should unfold, uh, which is actually disconnected from our experience. I remember once I had the unfortunate uh, experience of reading right at the beginning of my practice in India, the little booklet, Mahasi Sayadaw, I wrote on the stages of insight, where he describes all the stages and what happens. And I'm reading through the book. Oh, yeah, I've had that experience. Yeah, yeah, I know that one. And I went through all... And this was kind of fixed in my mind, that I actually knew, you know, what he was talking about. Months later, years later, as I had actually done the work and gone through the practice and all the ups and downs and began actually to experience, I saw that my previous notions were completely misguided. You know, because I was working with an idea about it rather than the actual experience. The three characteristics are revealed, cannot help but be revealed through attention in each moment. So when we're with the breath, with the sensation, with the sound, as we actually are undistracted in the moment, what will be revealed in that is the impermanence of things, is the unreliability, is the emptiness. You don't have to go looking for them. And often, if we do go looking for them, what's really happening is we're looking for some idea of them. So in actual practice, there's no difference at all. What we are doing is developing insight into these characteristics, but we're doing it in a way that is actually coming out of our experience rather than out of a theory. And that's what gives the practice so much power. And it's, it's actually what transforms us. And we could, we could sit here and say impermanence, impermanence, impermanence all day long. But if we're not actually seeing, connecting with the arising object and noticing how it changes, the saying of it doesn't mean much. It's the actual seeing of it. Uh, sometimes we say uh, a moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom. Let me put you a case. Suppose, uh, 
<laughs> Suppose aversion arises and it's seen clearly, but it has roots of self-righteousness and there's some desire there. Not seen. You can be very mindful of the aversion as it arises. But there's still a contraction and it's still... You don't want to say that's freedom from suffering. Could you elaborate on that? The question was about the statement the moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom and yet we could be aware of, for example, anger or aversion in the mind be mindful of that, but yet not be mindful of some underlying roots like self-righteousness or desire, desire, whatever. So it doesn't seem like the moment of mindfulness of the aversion is really freeing us from the suffering. I think that uh, Ajahn Chah said it very well, and it's what I mentioned the other night when he said, if you let go a little, you have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you have complete peace and freedom in the world. To the extent that we're seeing the aversion and not identifying with it, to that extent there's so much peace. If we're still holding on or identifying with some underlying roots, to that extent there's suffering. And one of the amazing parts of the purification process is that we begin to see the more and more subtle levels of identification and grasping that are going on underneath the more obvious letting goes. And in that way, it just things open up or let go on more and more subtle levels as our practice goes on. There were countless times in my practice, countless, where my mind would think, now I got it. You know, where it felt, okay, this is it. It's amazing that it took so long not to believe that thought. (laughs) It's basically taken 20 years. (laughs) Yeah. The question was, in other Buddhist traditions, do they include the Brahma-viharas? To my knowledge, in one form or another, the development of love and compassion, and the others as well, are inextricably part of the Buddha Dharma. They may be formulated in different ways, uh, but those qualities uh, of the heart and mind are very much part of what's to be developed. You mentioned in your talk something about uh, experiencing <coughs> beyond the past, future, and the present. And that's being beyond the present struck me as quite unusual. 
And um, looking at that in my experience, I can see when I'm immersed in things, really immersed in what is, there's no sense of time, no sense of concept. Or um, when intention's really fine, the the arising of things passes so the rising of passing rising and the passing of things happen so quickly that in, in fact there's no presence, just a continuous stream. Is that what you're referring to or something different? Question was about something I mentioned in the talk the other night, no no past, no future, no present, and what the no present part of that actually referred to. Um, one aspect is uh, what you said in terms of at a certain point in practice we're so attuned to the momentariness and insubstantiality of phenomena, it's like, it's really that sense that there's nothing really there, you know. And for the sense of present, it's like generally we um, we reify that sense as if the present is a moment that's right here, you know? and so we solidify some, even if it's just a moment. And in that, there's the creation of self of an I experiencing it. But when we're really tuned to the just to the instantaneously dissolving nature of everything. There's not even that. And I like it. I like the phrase because for me it serves as a... uh, What's the word? Um, Just as a prod to the mind just to let go completely. You know, and so I use the phrase in the hopes that either for myself or others, one of these times, you know, it'll happen. In a sense, we we can kind of let go of past, kind of let go of future, but when we say no present, you see the possibility of just kind of the floor falling out. So that was the that was the sense of it and the hope of it. Okay, let's let's try it. <laughs> no past, no future, no present. <laughs> okay, this is a wonderful cozy day to practice. <laughs> So please continue. Uh, in many respects, Trumpa Rinpoche was a remarkable guy. And I wonder how it came to pass that you wound up in Europa. And maybe something you care to share about the life of him. A good practice question. <laughs> The question was how I ended up connected uh, with Naropa in 74 and Trungpa and 
Actually, the connection there in that summer was uh, through Ramdas, who I had known in India, and I had not actually met Trungpa. So that was kind of the... the entranceway to that whole uh, summer at Naropa. Um, Ramdas had spent time in the in the Burmese Vihara, uh, practicing uh, both with Muninja and Goankaji. Uh, in fact, at some point we were we were kind of sharing. Uh, there was this row of rooms, little little cells. I was in one and he was in the next. And uh, Even then, he was the center of a lot of uh, energy. So people would be coming in and streaming you know, to see him. And I'd sort of be sitting on the other side of the wall. And I'd hear all this going on. I'd be banging on the wall quiet. I had been in Bodh Gaya for some time then and practicing. Ram Dass came in with his whole entourage. I had no idea who he was. Uh, and then they, they, somehow they brought this... Uh, I don't know if you remember the original edition of Be Here Now came in a box. Uh, and that showed up in Bodh Gaya and I looked at it. And from my quite uh, orthodox Theravada perspective at that time, I looked at it, this really seems really confused. <laughs> and then went on to sell six billion copies. <laughs> and change, change spirituality in America. <laughs> so we have a long connection. <laughs> question was about a lot of shaking in the practice. Um, at first it started out just kind of a swaying motion and then uh, I guess stronger shaking. I'm just wondering, you know, what that's about in the practice. It's not uncommon. I mean, often there are just different kinds of energy release that happen in the system. It can happen from that can happen from uh, that wonderful mental factor of rapture, even though it often doesn't feel like rapture. Um, at one point, one of the stories I didn't get to last night, I was doing uh, some lying meditation, uh, and this force came into my body. It flung me into an upright position and from lying down. <laughs> So strange things can happen. You know, there's very powerful energies. Um, 
the most important thing is keeping balance behind it. You know, trying to keep a mind that's the container big enough just to allow it. Uh, a few things you can do to sort of play with the energy a bit from different sides. Uh, one is you might sit with your eyes open and just see what effect that has, if any. You know, it may help to actually uh, balance the energy inside and, and keep it very grounded. Occasionally, there's another suggestion which you should try occasionally, and again, just as an exploration. Sometimes see what happens if you intentionally keep the body still, even if it requires some real intentionality. Because in certain situations, you can actually begin to feel the more subtle energy that's actually causing the movement, but feel it from the inside. You know, and there can be a release just in that internal flow of energy without it taking expression in movement. And sometimes just sit and be with it. You know, that it's that it's okay, it's not a problem. Do you follow so so you wanna you wanna be with it uh, in those three ways. And one of the things that increasingly happens uh, as the practice deepens and opens up is this connection of understanding that the mind-body is an energy system. And we tend to think of it conventionally as being something more or less fixed and solid. But through meditative awareness, you see that it's not that at all. It's really a very fluid system of energies. And we just learn to rest more and more in that. And in that process, it opens up and goes through a lot of manifestations. Did I tell you the story of my miracle? (laughs) I I have performed a miracle. (laughs) This goes back about I don't know, 15 years or so. I was teaching with Sharon in uh, the Redwoods in California at a retreat. We were sitting in sort of our cabin just before going into the morning sitting. And just in speaking with her, all of a sudden, kind of there was, I had this little burp, and out came a cloud of smoke and ash. It was quite startling. (laughs) And it was kind of sweet smelling and there was there was actually like particles of ash. And (laughs) what was that? (laughs) 
So after kind of getting over the shock of that, we just go into sit and it was just something that happened. But a few months later, at the first three-month retreat, we were teaching in Bucksport. I was in town at the bank, at the local bank, I don't know, doing something. I get up to the teller's window. <laughs> the same thing happened. <laughs> so I sort of back to work. <laughs> So then I got really curious, you know, what what is going on here? And now is about the time that, uh, again, I don't know how much, you know, kind of spiritual, modern spiritual history you know, but that was about the time that Ramdas was very involved with this woman, Joya, in New York City. Um, and a lot of people were going to see her, so I, I had some friends who were connected there, you know, just describe to her what had happened, see if she knew what, what this was. And she heard and she said, oh, that's the, it's called Vibhuti of Sai Baba. Now, Sai Baba is this Hindu saint, and he has this somehow psychic or some ability, some power. He, he kind of produces ash, you know, out of apparently nothing. So she said, oh, that's, that's the Vibhuti of Sai Baba. Okay. <laughs> I didn't have any connection with Sai Baba at all, to my knowledge. <laughs> then a couple of months later, I'm in India, you know, and I was back with Manindraji, and I told him what happened. Uh, and he listened, and he said, oh, it is the fire element. That's all. That was his explanation, just the fire element in the body manifesting in that strange way. Okay, it went from the Vibhuti of Sai Baba to the fire element. <laughs> and then a little time after that, I saw Deepama. You know, and I was telling her about this. And so she listened very carefully and she said, Oh, you must have some disease. So it was a very good lesson in the futility of interpretation. You know, we can put a thousand different interpretations on experience. The experience remains just what it is. You know, and it's very helpful in the practice to stay in that simplicity. And to learn how to work with things in a way that's balanced, that is the key that's the key element. You know, where we're mindful, where we're not reactive, where we're not identified, that's where the freedom is. You know, and to be wary of any interpretation at all, because it's just another concept from a particular angle.
Okay, the question was, uh, particularly around sound, sometimes sounds arise and there's awareness and they just kind of pass through. Sometimes sounds arise and sort of they're impactful and there may be some moments of reaction, either cringing or pulling back. But he feels equally mindful, equally aware in both those situations. Um, so what, why the difference? Um, that's not, that also is a common experience, I think. You know, very often we all have the experience of sounds passing through and there's not much impact. And yet sometimes sounds uh, arise and it can even be stronger than a, than a, uh, you know, a slight tightening or something. It can really feel like a dagger or very impactful on the energy system. I think there are two, two sides or two, two things to look at. One is, I think the level of impact to some degree is um, conditioned by the particular level of sensitivity and openness that the energy system happens to be in at that time. You know, and sometimes when we're at a certain level of openness, it just, it's very strong. The sound can really reverberate within us. Um, so that's one thing I've noticed you know, in my practice but it depends just on that. Another thing that you might look at, given the rapidity of the mind, there can be a loud, unpleasant sound. And just in the moment of arising, just in the moment of impact, we may not be totally mindful of the unpleasantness. And so there's this very quick process of it comes unpleasant. And sometimes, it's really interesting because sometimes even just a moment or two after that, one is aware of that having happened. And then there can be the relaxation. But it's like the the very quick, habituated response to unpleasantness, kind of a tightening or a resistance. And it's just not having been there exactly in the moment of that arising with the unpleasantness. And that's fine. I mean, that's that's not a problem. It's just to notice. Do you follow? It's really interesting to watch the process of the conditioning, you know, with each arising object. I mean, an obvious one, which you probably have worked with a lot over the three months, not only is there a conditioning if there's a strong or a sharp unpleasant moment to the sound, which can cause that reaction. But even if the sound itself is not so unpleasant, another whole 
arena of conditioning comes from our interpretation of the sound. You know, sound arises, and it may be it may be okay, but the mind could jump in immediately with oh, the person next to me is doing whatever they're doing. And then that thought conditioning the response. Again, it's one way of looking at the practice and what we're doing is just unpacking all the knots of reactivity, which then allows for a great freedom of response, of, of appropriate response to situations rather than coming from this automatic reactiveness, habituated reactiveness. And there's a lot of freedom in that. Three wonderful days of silence and solitude and quiet and beauty and wonder. So please enjoy them. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Four days. <laughs> Lucky. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma Seed dot org slash donate.